Hi, and welcome back to the Mindful Sport Performance Podcast. I'm Dr. Keith Kaufman. I'm Dr. Tim Pinot. And I'm Taylor Brown, the producer of the Mindful Sport Performance Podcast. And today we are here for a special 50th episode uh, question and answer session. Uh, Over the past few weeks, we've collected a number of questions from fans on a few of our social media platforms, as well as a few uh, email uh, lists that we have. And we are here to answer your questions about mindfulness and sports performance enhancement. But before we get started, Tim is going to lead us in a brief mindfulness practice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us today, Taylor. I'm excited about doing the Q&A. But yeah, let's let's take a moment to get centered. So um, if it is available to you, listeners, I would encourage everyone to uh, find a place to, to sit where your feet can be firmly planted on the, the ground. And if you feel okay, let your eyes close. And then I want to invite you to take a hand, either hand, and place it over your heart. First, just bring your attention to the sensation created by your hand pressing against your chest. Maybe what you notice is the rise and fall accentuated by the pressure on your chest. Maybe you notice the warmth or even the difference in temperature where your hand is touching outside the boundaries of your hand. As you stay tuned into this feeling your hand and your heart. I want to invite you to bring in an intention. Think about what it's like to put your hand on someone's shoulder when they're crying or in pain. Think about what it's like to wrap your arms around a loved one you haven't seen in a long time. Think about what it's like to hold a child's hand, keep them safe as you cross the street. Put that intention into your hand. See if you can experience this touch, your own hand on your own heart. With the intention of protecting, of loving, of caring. See if you can allow whatever tension might be residing in your body, across your jaw, your shoulders. Let it melt under the warmth of your hand. Allow yourself to let go as you feel held by your own intention to be kind and loving. 
few more breaths, just like this. Getting ready to bring this meditation to a close. Maybe tune in to your feet, the points of contact between your body and the chair, sounds around you. You can take your hand off of your chest, let it rest in your lap. Re-enter the space around you when you feel ready. Sit back and open your eyes. Ah, thank you. Yeah, that was great, Tim. My pleasure. That was um, really felt like maybe one of the first practices I've done where I could really elicit what I would describe as self-compassion mm. in a way that was very like, it, it didn't feel forced. It just felt, oh, you, you kind of brought up these images or experiences uh, that everybody can relate to putting a, a hand on a shoulder, hugging a loved one, helping a child cross the street, like all that stuff most people have experienced, I would assume. And to then feel that and then feel like uh, give that intention to yourself, that that self-compassion. <laughs> so that was cool. Yeah. No, yeah. I, you know, one of the very, actually, maybe it was the very first compassion meditation I was ever led through was loving kindness meditation. My teacher, Rezvan, uh, was leading it and, you know, starting with very traditional, you know, starting with, uh, you know, can you develop kind of warm, compassionate feeling towards yourself? Um, and she used this image. She's like, imagine yourself as a, as a baby, you know, as an infant and someone was holding you and like, what was that person feeling when they were first holding you, you know, just all hope and love and, you know, um, and it was so powerful, like that I, that I could imagine what I would feel holding a baby, you know, and then like, it's just like a, to just allow it to bridge like it, oh, could I feel that way about myself? Like that was such a powerful experience for me. I think, I think I've, when I do compassion meditations like that, I think I often add something like that in because, yeah, because I think it was so helpful to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I like, you know, so many compassion meditations that I've done or loving kindness meditations involve affirmations or even visuals. I liked your inclusion of touch. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of a tactile guy. That's the sense that resonates the most with me. And so, you know, to use the hand on the heart and to parallel that to, as Taylor was saying, other kinds of touch like that. I really like that. That that was a different way to access compassion. And it just makes me think about how when you lead exercises like this, you can use different senses as gateways. And it's kind of like a love languages thing. Like when I do the love languages test, I'm a touch guy. And <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Me too. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can change gears here and move on to the intention for our episode, which is to uh, answer some frequently asked questions. Um, okay. But before we do that, and, and we hadn't really uh, discussed this in our pre-production meeting, but, you know, 50 episodes, that's uh, quite an accomplishment over the past few years. And, and I, I just wondered if you guys could each just reflect on what the experience has been like. Uh, for you just just producing this since I think our, our first episode was May 2020 so it's it's been uh, over two years um, of, of work on this and you know what are what are some some thoughts about that journey yeah. well, Tim do you want to go first you want me to go first um sure yeah yeah I'll go um I can't believe it's I mean yeah I can't believe it's been 50 episodes I can't believe it's been two years um yeah, it's yeah, I just that's I'm kind of just like sitting in the in the disbelief of it. Like, wow, we really have kind of interviewed a lot of people or done a lot. And I think for me, I guess in the recent, you know, being being gone for such a big chunk of our of our last season, it kind of made this almost like disjointed feel to the whole like history of it. But um it's nice to kind of reflect on it, not as this like on these discrete pieces of like, oh that you know that first year where we were like kind of 
just figuring it out. And then this period of time where I had to be, be gone, you know, because of, because of grief and, and now coming back and just like to look at it as a whole thing. It's like, wow, it's, we've like, we've created a lot, which is cool, but it's also like, oh, wow, we've, we've been through a lot in creating this, which is just, it's a nice reminder of our kind of connection and this team we have here. Yeah, it's, yeah we literally that. went through the pandemic. Yeah. Since we started, right? Yeah. We really did. Yeah. We, uh, when we first started recording, we were doing it in person with guests, with each other. Tim, you and I were in the same room, remember? And, yeah. you know, like everything else, we've transitioned to this Zoom format, which has made it easier in some ways. But yeah. um, that's a big shift that's happened over time. Yeah. And the, the, the genesis of the, I think the genesis might have been in 2019, really. I mean, it wasn't even in 2020 yet. And then we had started recording prior to the pandemic. And then uh, we didn't really get to really, really you know, launch until May. I think, I, I can't remember if we had discussions, but it was, we were kind of like, well, should we wait until all this blows over? And yeah. then launch, and then May rolled around and we were like, well, it's, it's probably going to go for a little while. So we should probably just get going. <laughs> yeah 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 I, I mean when i when i think about it i just have so much fun doing this i i really enjoy collaborating with you guys um you know taylor when you you approached us you had done our instructor training and said that you thought tim and i are like everything about doing a podcast you guys have a kind of cool rapport and um i honestly hadn't thought about doing a podcast but when you said that i was like wow i, I think that would be a lot of fun and um, it hasn't disappointed. I, I remember still sitting, I think we recorded the first episode in, in my house, Tim. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Yeah. I remember the first the first one, the pilot episode, we were like, we're just going to start talking and see what happens. And that was one of the weirdest feelings I've ever had in my whole life. Yeah, Just starting to talk and recording it. Um, but I, I think, you know, it's been neat to see how it's evolved. And, and Taylor, you've obviously been instrumental in that as well and all the efforts you've put in. Um, it's been such a thrill to meet so many interesting people and, and to think about how we can try to reach a larger audience, I guess, to, to pull behind the, the curtain a tiny bit, you know, we, we feel like both our, our greatest strength and our greatest weakness as a podcast is being so niche and, and being on the cutting edge of this mindfulness and sport world. And, um, we've been so gratified by the people who've been willing to come on and the people who seem to be listening and following and, you know, our whole thing is how do we expand this out and, and reach a larger audience and try to accomplish this larger shift of, you know, approaching achievement differently. That's really why we do what we do. And so it's been fun to kind of tackle that in a microcosm on the podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just feel so grateful for you guys. Honestly, I'm thrilled that we can do this for a 50th anniversary, 50th, eh, a 50th episode. Um, not quite our 50th anniversary. That would be crazy if we're doing this in 50 <laughs> years. Um but the fact that we can, the three of us can record this together. I think that's really cool. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I've, uh, I've enjoyed it as well. And, and I've, I kind of look back and, uh, it's interesting. I, I, I never really thought of myself as a podcast producer, especially when we started, um, I had some experience in various different media, uh, and content production, but not, not had I ever created a, a podcast. And now I just look back for the past, two and a half, three years. And uh, I kind of look at this skill set I've continued to develop. And I'm like, well, I didn't really even try. I just kind of like went, I just did it. And, and I'll, you know, I just kind of got better at it. And then it's, it's, it's interesting to just reflect on, on that whole process of, of kind of building a, you know, building a skill set, I guess it, it, what I would call it um, in a mindful way. I, I don't know. I hope it's been mindful. Um, but yeah, so let's, let's jump on into to these questions. And so the first one is from Kayla Hightower from, uh, LinkedIn. And, um, you know, we, for our listeners, we came together as a group and we looked at these questions and we thought about what would be a, a, a great, um, uh, way to, you know, present these questions in a, in a way that logically made sense. And, and we thought this one was, was great to kick it off because it just kind of gets rid right of the at the core of, of a lot of what we talk about. Um, so she says, uh, how does increased mindfulness improve sports performance and what is the relationship to anxiety? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, when I read this question, the first thing I thought of was just attention. 
right? I thought of Peter Haberl's quote, attention is the currency of performance, which I know I've referenced on this podcast before. It's, it's something that I think just sums up the impact of mindfulness so well that, that when we can practice mindfulness, uh, be in the moment, be in the present, uh, it puts us much more in control of ourselves as much as we can control ourselves, um, much more able to impact the moment that we're in, which I think is crucial for any performance situation. And when you contrast that to anxiety, where, you know, if you think about mindfulness as sort of the epitome of present moment attention, I think of anxiety as the epitome of future oriented attention, where you're thinking about something that hasn't happened, something bad, something you're trying to protect yourself against. Um, And I mean, I talk about this all the time with athletes, it's really hard to perform when you're in the moment trying to do this really difficult task, but your head is in the future anticipating the outcome. Um, it's just, it's just not a recipe for, for good performance. And, and it also creates additional barriers that, that make it even harder to succeed. Um, so I see mindfulness and anxiety many ways as, as, you know, two sides of the same attentional coin, right? One being in the present and one being in the future and, and the impact on performance being pretty profound. Yeah. And I, yeah. And, and I think that, you know, that concept of control that you were talking about too, um, feel so, so relevant. I mean, cause I think I, we are taught from a very young age to just try to control, control things, control, control your thoughts, control your emotions, control your body, you know, be able to, to, to achieve, to achieve the, the good grades or the superior sport performance. And yet, there's just so much that is outside of our control. Uh, and I think a lot of anxiety really comes from that, like comes from trying to control things that are not controllable and then getting worried about the impact of not being able to control the things. You know, if you're an athlete and you think like, well, I can't perform unless I feel supremely confident. And so I need to control my self-doubting thoughts. You might have a self-doubting thought, like it might just be a thing that happens. And if you're convinced that I need to control that in order to perform well, you know, you've, you've kind of lost the battle before it's started. Um, so I think mindfulness really opens up a door to a, just a, a different way to approach achievement, you know, like, like Keith was saying, and it's about letting go of control or maybe a better way to put it. It's like knowing what you can influence, you know, having some wisdom in terms of where you put your effort and energy, because, you know, I, I it feels like it's going to just be a, a kind of a wiser choice, right? To, to invest your focus and attention into present moment technique, like something that can actually impact the next moment rather than worrying about like, oh, is coach going to be disappointed in my play after, after the game? Like if that's where your mind is, you're trying to control another human being's perceptions and emotions, of course it's going to make you anxious. And of course it's going to take your head out of the game. You know, so, so it, I think mindfulness teaches us how to, how to relate to this concept of control differently that I think really helps us let go of anxiety and allows us to be more presently focused, like Keith is saying, that it's really the key to superior performance. I wanted to, sorry, I just, uh, quick, I, I, Tim, I'm dying to know the answer to this question or how you look at it, because this came up with someone I was working with yesterday. You mentioned letting go. And, and I think letting go is something we talk about all the time. Um, it's also something that I think it just gets so misunderstood. And, and so many people here are letting go and they think, ah, you know, just, just don't pay it, you know, just move on, just get rid of it. Right. That kind of thing. Um, and so I wonder, like, like when you say, like, make a wiser choice, right. The choice to, to let go of anxiety, like, how do you, how do you quantify that? How do you, how do you explain that to athletes? Like what is letting go really? Yeah. <laughs> What a hard question. Uh, <laughs> like, and you know, I do think actually like what it looks like, it really depends. It depends on the specific situation. Um, but I do think it, it has something to do with this idea of, I mean, maybe what I would call like accurate perception, right? Recognizing, yeah, what are the things I can influence and what are the things that I, I can't? I was actually just, this is like outside of the sports or, arena, but I was just talking with a client about this. Um, and about kind of, it was about letting go. And like, let's say you are someone who uh, you're, you're single and you want a partner. 
you know, and maybe you're in your forties. All right. So society, the, the, the societal narrative would say you should have already been married. You should have already started having kids and you should have already be established. Right. And so think about the, the shame or the anxiety that someone carries when they haven't met all these shoulds. Now, what I tell that person, you should let go of wanting a partner and that would solve your issue, right? Well, no, of course I'm not gonna say that. Like wanting a partner is a human need, wanting companionship and, and, and connection. But to be able to recognize, oh, there's a narrative. There is a how I've been taught. There's a should in terms of how to get a partner or when you should have a partner. And those are things I can let go of. Kind of the belief structure around whatever it is, my need, my emotion. Because if you can let go of the idea that, oh, I should have already gotten married in my 20s, well, then suddenly you've been able to put down a lot of the, the shame about not having met that milestone. A lot of the, the beliefs that might be surrounding you around like, wow, I'm deficient in some way, which of course is going to impact how you show up on a date, which is going to impact how you could potentially going to meet someone, how they're going to perceive you. You know, like all these things are connected, right? It's a big complicated picture. So, so yeah, letting go is I think a really nuanced idea. It requires us to look really deeply at a particular reaction that we're having and, and to suss out like, like what part of this is authentically mine, right? Wanting a partner or wanting to perform well at sports, like totally a legitimate thing to want. You know, but how I go about it, I can look at the how, I can look at the process and I can figure out pieces that really aren't serving me. That's what I let go of. Yeah. Yeah, I, I relate to that a lot. Um, you know, in reference to this question, as, as somebody who experiences anxiety and has kind of um, benefited a lot from mindfulness in my life with regards to anxiety, um, I've had this question a lot from athletes that I work with as well is, you know, talking about letting go, talking about acceptance. Uh, they say, well, um, maybe they're having the thought, uh, uh, they're afraid that they're going to fail or, um, they're worried about their performance in some way. And we talk about acceptance or we talk about letting go of that thought. And one of their first responses is, well, I don't want to let go of that thought. I don't want to let go of that because if I let if, if I let go of that, then that means I'm I'm or or I don't want to accept it because then that means I'm uh I'm just accepting that I'm going to fail. Right. And and it's one of the distinctions that I try to make, or hopefully I, I make, is that it's it's not actually accepting the thought itself it's accepting the discomfort that you're experiencing while you're thinking, while you're having that thought, right? Because discomfort is really kind of what drives us. So if we have that thought and then that's uncomfortable to have that thought, then we might engage with this anxiety and kind of go down this rabbit hole versus just accepting that that thought is there, observing it, and then choosing not to engage with that thought anymore and choosing to be present instead. And so that's, that's kind of the, the way I've taken it sometimes, um, is we're, we're learning how to respond to an, an inner experience of discomfort in a, in a way that it doesn't, it doesn't control where we then choose to, to put our energy, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you use this word a couple of times. I know this comes up all the time, probably at least once in our 50 episodes, right, is, is this idea of choice. Mm -hmm. And, and right, I mean, I, I think it, it really, at least to me, like something I'll do sometimes with, with folks that I work with is do a little experiment in letting go. Um, where I'll going back to what I, I guess I said at the start of, of this answer is, you know, just using a choice with attention and how making an attentional choice can actually facilitate letting go, right? That, you know, literally, if you if you focus on one object intently, and then you remove that object and you hold up a second object, and you focus on that intently, and you say, well, what happened to the first object? 
for, for most people, the first object kind of disappears. There's just a natural letting go that happens when you shift your attention from object A to option B. It's not like you had to make it. It's not like you said, hey, don't think about that thing. Forget about that thing. Just right. You just kind of naturally shifted from object A to object B. And by doing that, by making that choice, you're letting go. Right. And I think, Taylor, what, what you were saying is so right on that that what allows that is is that acceptance piece is like, OK, this thing is there. Right. Object A is there. Just like this thought is there. But just because it's there, that doesn't mean I have to attach myself to it as truth. That doesn't mean I have to follow it down that rabbit hole. I can still make the choice to focus on object B, which, hey, maybe that's the puck or maybe that's the ball or maybe that's some other thing that's happening in my present moment that would help me let go of that anxious thought and instead refocus on the task at hand. Right. Right. So moving on to, a, to another question that's, that's kind of in a similar vein you know, a lot of times we do have um, people we're working with, whether they're athletes or other performers that kind of, like I said, they, they do push back sometimes, you know, especially with concepts like acceptance or, uh, you know, meditation or, or things that, that might be uncomfortable for them. Um, so, so, so what are some common obstacles that athletes face, you know, with regards to, you know, learning mindfulness, um, meditation, um, other tools or techniques that we use. Uh, and this comes from uh, fail better training on Instagram. Yeah, well, you I mean, you certainly named one obstacle, like kind of the what people the expectations that someone might carry in, you know, to this new kind of training, like it is new, it is a very different way to look at ourselves, to look at achievement, you know? And so asking someone to let go of what is ultimately kind of very, a very like fear-based culture in sport about how to like motivate someone, how to get someone to want to do better, right? It's really like centered on avoiding failure more so than like actually pursuing, I think a kind of achievement. Um, but that's safe because it's what they know. Um, and so that idea of like, yeah, if I'm more accepting or if I'm more compassionate or whatever, I'll, 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 I'll lose my edge or I'll, right. I'm just resigning myself to failure. Um, and in some ways, like we can't, you know, we can't argue with that because I, uh, you know, we are asking, I do ask athletes that like, you, you have to accept the reality that you're going to fail, which is different than saying I'm resigning myself or accepting that for this competition, I'm going to fail. But like in general, like no one wins everything. There's no athlete in history who like never lost the competition, who like went undefeated in every single time they ever they ever competed. Um, so yeah, we do we do need to accept that we're gonna fail, which is different than right, like being in the midst of a competition and getting really worked up and like getting anxious about our our performance and then feeling like mindfulness is telling us, oh, you just have to accept that you're gonna lose this time and be okay with that. Because I would argue that if we if we let go of these future-oriented worries, they're like, oh my God, in 30 minutes when this game is over, I'm going to have lost, right? Invest those resources right now in the present moment. If you're behind in a race or in a game or whatever, like, man, what do I need to do? What changes do I need to make? Um, use those resources to your advantage. That's like that, that, that wisdom idea of investing yourself in the places where you do have influence. Um, so yeah, I think challenging people to just see themselves and see the world and see achievement in a new way, that's a huge obstacle. Yeah, totally. And I, I guess, you know, to, to extend that and also, I guess, to look at it from a slightly different lens, I guess I'll, I'll present two that I think are very tangible, right? So, so literally what, as you're both saying, like the terminology. I think the terminology is so different and we use words like acceptance, words like compassion, words like meditation, words like mindfulness. Probably the one that's most polarizing we haven't even talked about yet, non-striving, right? Bringing, bringing an idea like non-striving into an achievement arena, whether it's sports or anyone else who's a high level performer, that, that is always interesting to see people's reactions to that. I think until they understand what we're really talking about, but you talk about misunderstanding something. Um, the other thing that, that I see, and I think back, like Tim, when we were writing our book and, and doing like our case studies and, and things like that, 
I think just the idea of slowing down, the idea of slowing down and, and just the power of being able to, to pause the, the power in being able to check in with yourself. Like I, I, I always reference this, this time magazine cover story that came out a handful of years ago now on um, the mindful revolution. And one of the points that the journalist made who wrote that article is that everyone wants the benefits of mindfulness. They're just not willing to do what it takes to be mindful, <laughs> right? It's like, I, I want to keep living my life exactly how I'm living it. And I want to do all, and I want to have all these nice things that come from, from mindfulness. And, and so I think as we invite people to just slow down a little bit, um, pause, right? Like whether that's to make time to meditate, like in some kind of formal practice or even an informal practice, like to just appreciate where you are right now, rather than thinking 10 steps ahead of yourself. I think that can be incredibly hard for, for people, especially folks like athletes, perhaps, or coaches who are so used to moving so fast and thinking so far ahead. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's a, that's an interesting thing. You brought that up, Keith. It, I, I can't remember who I was talking to the other day, but I described mindfulness. Oh, I was talking to a, a, a cross country coach. I described mindfulness as we're teaching athletes a different way to uh, experience the world, ex, you know, experience life, a different really a different lifestyle uh that has really you know nothing to do with sports <laughs> mm-hmm. it's funny to say on the podcast yeah, but, but yeah. it's it's we're teaching people how to live differently and then these happy side effects are oh they get great better at sports yeah. too because of this new way that we're teaching them to experience uh performance um and i'm not obviously i'm not saying that uh to you know disparage anything that we do but i i think it's it's true that we're we're really you know it, it's a big commitment to do this work in your life because we're asking you to change the way that you do things and the way that you experience things um so it's not just uh we're teaching you how to visualize so that you can score the goal in the next game um it's, it's really a, a big commitment. Yeah. Um, so, oh, uh, I just like wanted to add something to that. Cause it, 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 um, like, I think that's kind of directly connected to what, what Keith was saying about like, what is an obstacle? Like an obstacle is the commitment that is required. Um, you know, it really is. I mean, in the same way that, that an athlete commits to training their bodies, you know, we're talking about committing to training your, your mind, um, which at first may feel like it requires um, sacrifices. You know, this is, I think this is what Keith is getting to about like the idea of slowing down and why that's so hard, you know, because if you're like, oh, wow, I want my, my evenings to feel more spacious and so that I can sleep better. Like, okay, so we know some things, right? Like, you know, reducing screen time or like maybe not spending as much, you know, time like doom scrolling on your phone when you're in bed, you know? And at first it's like, oh, so I'm going to, so I'm not going to watch TV before bed. So I'm not going to have my phone in bed, right? These are like, these are all things I feel like I'm sacrificing. Um, But I would argue, and I I would say it's certainly been my experience that as I've, you know, made decisions based on this like mindful perspective, and about how to take care of myself, about how to slow down and appreciate things more. Like I, I have, you know, I don't go on social media. Like I, I have reduced the amount of TV. I, I, I've made changes in my life that I think at one point would have felt like sacrifices. And now they just feel like obvious. They're like, of course, of course, I would rather read a little bit before bed instead of watch TV. When I remember just a few years ago, like that very struggle, you know, being a struggle. Um, and so I think, you know, this obstacle at the beginning of like, wow, to really slow down, to really embrace this commitment, it, it may very well require changes in your life, which people are resistant to at first. It's a huge obstacle. But I think over time, as, as the practice has an impact on you, that um, it not only becomes easier and easier to make these kinds of changes, like it, like it becomes the new default, like, oh, wow, I actually wouldn't, wouldn't want to spend my time now watching, you know, all that TV because... I feel better mentally, physically, emotionally when I do this other thing. Yeah, you you just mentioned you know, time. And just one thing that just popped into my mind is um, 
from your experience over the past decade or more with with your mindfulness practice and and teaching other people about this what i know this this might not be an easy question to answer but what is the amount of time like is is it uh you know is it you see you generally see people really picking this stuff up in six months is it a year is it five years i mean obviously there are different levels of mastery of this of these practices you look at uh folks who've been meditating for 30 years and they obviously have a huge level of expertise in it um but with athletes what is what is that period of time if somebody really starts committing to it when do we start to see that kind of shift uh, occur and this reminds me of back in our what was it our second ever episode the conversation we had with kate um yes, talking yeah. about yeah i mean this, this yeah. is a great question and it is it is a hard one um i think you know it's it's interesting i, I know some folks have really tried to tackle that like uh, amishi ja one of our former guests as well has talked about in her research identifying somewhere around 12 minutes as being kind of an important miles i mean of course you can't like you know, pin it down to an exact, but, but in terms of a session of mindfulness, what can be impactful is, you know, in the neighborhood of 12 minutes, um, in terms of how long to practice. I, I remember kind of how we answered that question with Kate, right? Like it's kind of a good news, bad news thing. I guess we would say the, I guess I'll start with the bad news first. It's like, this is a lifelong practice and you never reach a finish line. I think every time, and, and Tim, you and I have talked extensively about this both on and off the podcast, Every time you do it, you learn something new, you know, and, and it's, it's a constant period of growth. So I, I think it's, it's something that can be a bit of a slow burn in terms of how things start changing. It, it's sort of like it occurs to you one day, oh, wow, like I totally related differently to my, to my teammate or to my coach or, or to this test that I had or to this, you know, fitness test that I had, whatever. Um, and, and so I think it, it can be something that takes a little while in that regard. And yet I've never done like a breathing session, right? Like, well, like one of our breathing practices and not had an immediate benefit from it. Right. So, so I think one of the nice things, like we talk about our performance facilitators and one of them is relaxation. Um, and specifically this ability to make the choice to let go of extra tension that we might be carrying. That's something that can have immediate benefit you know, after, after just a, a short time practicing and recognizing like, oh, this is what tension is. And oh, if I breathe this way, it makes my body feel differently. Right. So, so I think there can be really, really fast, powerful, incredible benefits, but also benefits that literally take years to unfold. This actually is a good segue to, uh, to the next question, um, which is, uh, you know, I guess I'll preface this with with some experiences I've had with with pretty high level athletes where in the first month of practice, really, they gain a ton of awareness about their thoughts, their emotions, their sensations, their inner experience, their their habits of reaction, their defaults, all this stuff. Um, and then sometimes I've I've had them come to me and go, okay. I, I built this awareness and now what do I do? Like, I, I feel like I'm just aware of everything now. And so the question from Danny Orion is, um, can we be too aware such that it hampers our performance? Uh, can mindfulness make us so aware of our constant thoughts and feelings that it can harm the ability to be in the moment at any time, uh, at, at the time of performance? Um, so yeah, I, I'd love to hear. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. This this question or a version of this question, it, it, it comes up pretty much in every single one of our instructor trainings. Um, because there is, there is research on like expert performance and what happens when someone who kind of has attained this expert level of performance, like which is normally associated with, you know, you know, that concept of muscle memory and feelings of automaticity, like when you then try to direct your attention back to it, you know, like a, a golfer who has, you know, been on the circuit for many, many years, suddenly trying to like deconstruct their, their swing. 
it can actually really interfere with performance and even contribute to choking. And so there are some people, right, who are, who are coming at mindfulness with this idea of like, whoa, 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 you're telling people to direct their focus and attention to these really well-learned skills. We know that's just going to screw them up, right? That idea of being too, maybe trying to be too, too aware, maybe. Um, but, you know, our, our kind of response to that is that um, we're talking about a different kind of attention, you know, to use the g- golf as an example, again, you know, if a golfer, if an elite golfer is um, trying to really observe what it feels like when they do a swing, when they do their swing, right? Um, if they are also trying to judge like, all right, does this feel right or does this feel wrong? Is this the way my hands should be, right? When they, when they try to, to set up that like kind of critical analysis, that's what really trips us up, you know? Because when you think about how just, memory works in general, right? We take kind of discrete pieces that get chunked into larger pieces, especially when it comes to procedural memory, right? Like, you know, the, the, how the, we, the ways we store how to do things, how to drive stick shift, how to ride a bike, how to swing a golf club. Um, those memories, those capacities become very hard to unchunk. Um, and so we're really like fighting against the current when we try to use our analytical mind in that way. We're not suggesting that with mindfulness. With mindfulness, we're talking about bare awareness, not judging is this the way it should feel, but just experiencing the way it does feel. And I think when we do that, we actually allow ourselves to, to like tune in to the, to the whole of the process, maybe is a good way to put it, right? Rather than, than, than looking at every discrete, like the backswing and the follow through, but like, what does the whole stroke feel like? And can I notice moments when that stroke feels off? Um, which I recognize may, that may then sound like a judgmental process of saying, oh yeah, that was right and that was wrong. But it's, it's not about right or wrong when we're kind of observing ourselves mindfully. Um, it's really about kind of, being honest about cause and effect. You know, if I swing this club one way, the ball goes straight. If I swing this club the other way, you know, this other way, the ball slices. It's just cause and effect. And we're not necessarily saying that straight is right and slice is wrong, but for a given shot, we may need the ball to go straight. And so it's worth our while, it's wisdom, right? To be able to really pay attention to what our swing feels like. And to notice the moments when something's happening that's going to make the ball slice instead of go straight. Um, so this different kind of attention, I think, allows us to be aware, maybe even hyper aware, um, without these kind of detrimental kind of interference effects. Um, and really what it speaks to is the, the kind of the two components of mindfulness. We've been talking a lot about attention, about awareness, but like acceptance, right? It's, it's attending to your experience with a non-judgmental attitude. Both of those pieces are vitally important because it's quite easy to imagine kind of attending to your experience and that making you more anxious because you don't have the kind of acceptance component with it. And actually we see that. I've certainly seen that in, in a lot of athletes. When you first teach them a breathing exercise, it makes them more anxious. <laughs> They don't have this kind of the acceptance piece a little built up yet. And so they're trying to watch their breath. And suddenly it's like, am I breathing right? I think I'm breathing wrong. I don't know what breathing is supposed to feel like. And they get really worked up. But it's such a, it's such a great opportunity to highlight like, Ooh, look at all those shoulds. Look at all the rules you were trying to follow about breathing. And can you just experience what it feels like to breathe? And then can we translate that? And that's what we do at MSBE. We, we build up step by step, culminating in a sport meditation so that we've, we've built this awareness and we've built this acceptance so that when we're practicing these integral motions in our sport, we can just experience what they feel like without trying to judge if they're right or wrong. Yeah, to kind of carry on the, the metaphor of the golfer, um, it, I was recently... <sighs> reading some of uh, material from Viktor Frankl and mm. he had in his uh, I guess it's I'm not sure if it's pronounced logotherapy or logotherapy but the idea of paradoxical intention which kind of sounds a lot like um, uh, ironic processes of the brain which you talk about in uh, your mm. book 
which is if you try to, if you really try hard to think about something, or you try hard to, to do something in a certain way. I'm imagining a golfer trying to hit a ball in a certain way. Um, and they, they, you know, if they're having a, a trouble doing it, if it, the, the more they think about doing it, the more it's going to throw them off. Um, and, and the, the, uh, example he used in in his book was of um, a case where he was treating a, a patient with a, a bad stutter and they they couldn't figure out how to really help this person uh, but they finally figured out if they said if they if they asked him try to stutter uh, try to say something with a stutter all of a sudden he couldn't <laughs> stutter he could just talk and so um, I, I, I wonder if, if that's kind of, a, kind of a demonstration of the difference between uh, actively trying to think about something versus, um, versus just being aware of, of what you're doing. Hmm. Yeah. The difference between doing and being, right? Yeah. Which, uh, to borrow John Kabat-Zinn's language a little bit. Right, right. Yeah. And I think too, I and mean, this goes back to the idea of like the, just the, the kind of culture of sport generally and kind of our, our, our default modes. Like I think in those moments, a lot of times athletes are just as likely to be thinking about what they don't want to do as much as what they do want to do. It's like, am I, I, I don't want this to go in the rough. I don't want, you know, like, and, and that like, kind of the ironic mental process the harder you try not to think about something the harder that thought pushes back you know when we're trying to avoid failure our mind gets consumed with all these images of failure and our mind and body are, are, are connected so powerfully it just makes it more likely that we're going to do that thing it's one of the reasons why visualization positive visualization of like thinking about what you would want it to look like can in fact be kind of a for some people a really helpful intervention um but, but yeah, I, I do think you're also getting at, like he was saying, it's like uh, this difference between being and doing, just allowing. That's another word I think that comes up a lot. Can you allow this experience to unfold all the skill, all the practice you've put in, right? Can you now allow that skill to come out rather than try to force it, control it? Yeah, I think that breathing example you gave before is so resonant with that. I and mean, we've seen that so many times in MSBE groups where, essentially what people start to do is they start to force their breathing. It's, it's kind of like that relax, damn it. Right. Relax, relax, relax. And the more they try to force relaxation, the obviously the more tense they get. So I, I think Taylor, it is an astute comparison to the ironic mental processes. Um, and I think that gets into, we don't have to go too far down the rabbit hole in this episode, but, but really what's so, what's so valuable about non-striving. Right. And, and one of the most advanced concepts that we get to in MSPE, and I think something that's so integral to mindfulness work is kind of letting things unfold in their time and putting that most precious um, resource of your attention on what's happening right now, instead of what you need to happen or what should happen or what has to happen, which, which invariably pulls your attention to the future. And, and raises your attention and right back to the first question we were talking about with anxiety. Um, so I, I think there's a huge paradox here as well. And, and I see this a lot too, like working with athletes when athletes are coming off of maybe not like a serious, serious injury, but like, let's say a minor injury or coming off of a minor illness, and maybe they're going into a big competition, but they know they didn't get to train quite as much as they would have ordinarily. And so some of that shooting, some of that have to, some of that pressure of what needs to happen gets relieved and they're able to just go out and do what Tim was saying. It's just go execute their skills. I've seen it happen so many times that that's when they PR. That's when they beat the rival that they never been able to beat before. That's where something happens because they're not trying to make it happen. They're just letting it unfold because their expectations are quote unquote lower, right? Because there are some circumstances that, that change it for them. And so one of the things I love about this type of training is, well, hey, this is a way to kind of work with those expectations without needing to be sick or needing to be injured or needing to somehow otherwise self-handicap, right? Like, like you can actually, if you can, if you can accept, okay, you know, I'm going to be at my best when I can just be where my feet are, right? I love that quote, like just be where your feet are, right? And not try to make something else happen. Um, 
I, I think that is, that is to me is what is so powerful about, about mindfulness. Um, but also can be overwhelming, right? Getting back to the question that, that Taylor, you asked that got us on this. Um, it can be hard sometimes to tolerate all the things that are happening in the moment. And, and that's another way we can work with attention, right? Is, is we can filter our attention. I, one of our, another one of our former guests, John Stevens, right? Talking about how you can think about attention as a, a flashlight beam, right? And you can widen it, you can narrow it, you can direct it where you want it to go. Being mindful doesn't mean that you have to be flooded by everything at all times, right? And, and I think that's also something that gets commonly misunderstood. Yeah. I want to acknowledge uh, two other questions uh, before we get to the end of the episode here that kind of had a similar theme, uh, which is questions from James Schwabach and uh, Tim Herzog. Uh, and, and they both essentially asked, um, you know, mindfulness sometimes we look as um we look at as a kind of the key to feeling better or the key to reducing stress um when actually um mindfulness is is a little bit more process focused it's it's uh the key to being as as tim Her herzog says that the key to being better at feeling rather than the key to being to the key to feeling better um when you're working with clients who kind of want that, uh, you know, want mindfulness to be the um, the stress reduction button that I can push to be, become less stressed, you know, how do you how do you work with that? How do you how do you get people to step away from the uh, you know uh, A plus B equals C approach and more towards the uh, we're just getting better at experiencing whatever's here? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I love this, this question, because it does, it comes up a lot. And I actually, I think it speaks to a couple of different interesting facets. Um, you know, we were talking about kind of the patience, really, that is required on the part of the athlete, right? Like, I, I got to commit to this, this is going to take time. The same is true for the teacher, right? So I can't, I need to accept, I've had to accept over time right, that I can't force anyone to get this or to buy into it or to see it any differently than they are able to or willing to see it in this moment right now. So while I do have ways that I talk to the clients, the athletes that I work with who come up against this, who really want mindfulness to be kind of the solution to their anxiety or their insomnia or whatever, um, I certainly try to explain, you know, the perspective on, on, on why that's actually just like digging themselves deeper in the same hole they've been in. Um, and I also have to let them do it. Like I have to let them hold on to that desire and kind of let them kind of knock their head against that wall a few times and have the experience of like, wait a second, this is supposed to make me less anxious. And I, and I sat and I meditated and I got more anxious and what's going on, you know? And I, I think in some ways, until they've had that experience, I might not be able to convince them that that's not what mindfulness is about. That's not what we mean when we talk about meditation. We talk about, you know, meeting your experience as it is. And sometimes what's there is anxiety. But once we can meet it without judgment, right, just like any of the other thoughts we have, it'll come and it'll go. We can, you know, that's another kind of version of letting go. Um, <clears throat> You know, some people hear letting go and they kind of translate it as push away, but like, no, it's like a literal, just like, let, let it go. Let it pass in the same way that every emotion you've ever had has come and gone. So too will this one, even the anxiety. Um, but I, I think there's something experientially important about actually being attached to the idea that like, ah, this is going to reduce my anxiety and then experiencing how it doesn't work that way. And it's a lot to tolerate as a teacher to realize I can't actually get you to see it any differently. Your experience is going to get you to see it differently. And I might be able to help along the way with that. Yeah. And, and it's Keith, I, I want to hear your perspective on this too, but I, I just wanted to interject one thing here. It's really hard. I see when mindfulness it's there's two edges of the sword. Mindfulness, uh, has become much more accessible through apps and and through you know popular uh just like you know uh, popular publications and and other things um but in a society of life hacks and wanting things to be wanting you know like like he said you know they they want 
people want everything that mindfulness can bring, but they don't want to really change. They just want it to be this one simple thing that they can do. Um, it is easy, I think, to see this practice as as just a, another kind of like life hack that's done by you know the top the the things the top leaders do in their life, and they're like, oh, I have to do what those people do, and I'll be I'll be a leader, or I'll be a millionaire, or something like that, uh, or I'll have less stress at least. Um, but it, it, I think it gets sensationalized. And then when folks come in, they're like, oh, what is this? You're like, well, it's, it's not, you don't, it's not just going on an app and clicking reduce anxiety and then having your anxiety go away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that also goes back to the barriers, right. That we were talking about before. I think that's, that's 100% right, Taylor. Um, and, and in terms of this question, I'll just give a quick, 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 um, response that, I mean, I agree with everything that Tim said. Um, one other slant that I tend to take, which I think all my mindfulness work has really influenced how I think about this is our tendency to level, excuse me, to label emotions as good or bad. And instead, you know, to just kind of understand like, well, why do I feel what I feel? Why do I feel stress? Why do I want to get rid of stress? right? What is the function of it? And I mean, one of the things that I talk about a lot is, is I want people to be curious. And, and Taylor, you were talking before and you're, you're absolutely right. You know, discomfort, right? It's, it's, it's so hard to tolerate discomfort. And some of the stuff that we have to tolerate, it's, it's really hard and, and stress and anxiety, right? I mean, that's, those are biggies. Um, but I think there's so much power in being curious about it, and, and not just immediately go into that place of I'm uncomfortable, I have to kill this and change the state that I'm in and make it into something else, which I think that that leads us back to that paradox we were talking about earlier, which actually can make it more entangling. Um, you know, I, I sometimes will reference something like Inside Out, right, that Pixar movie. And one of the lessons from that about, you know, basically Joy's trying to get rid of sadness throughout the whole movie until the end when she realized, sorry, spoiler alert, I guess if you haven't seen Inside Out, um, you know, that sadness is actually kind of important. And sometimes you have to let yourself feel sad. You know, there can be circumstances where sadness is totally the appropriate reaction. And if you let yourself feel sad, oddly, that can promote a greater sense of equanimity, right? Because sometimes that needs to be expressed. Why do we just need to get rid of that right away? Because we don't like it. You know, so so I do think there are some ways to make pop culture references or I reference Pixar movies a lot because I feel like they hit on this stuff quite a bit, um, you know, so don't mean to be a spokesman for them. There's certainly other ways. But, um, you know, I think there are ways to make this relatable that that people can can sort of see like I've literally assigned athlete clients. I'm like, go watch Inside Out and we'll talk about yeah. it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, that's awesome. Well, I just I just thought of. Um... You know, John Kabat-Zinn's perhaps most popular book, Full Catastrophe Living, and it's, you know, full, experiencing the full catastrophe, as he puts it, uh, of life, the full um, kind of up and down of emotions and experiences. And, and you know, you can't experience the highs without the lows and and everything in between um, and kind of all taking that in stride and not not really have, having to get rid of the good and always approach, you know, or, or excuse me, get rid of the bad and always approach the good. Um, and uh, we're getting we're getting close to time here, though. Um, I, I think we could sit here for another few hours and talk about these questions. Um, but thank you so much for all of our, our listeners who have provided the questions uh, for us to answer on this episode. Um, you know, if you have any other questions, uh, you can always reach out to us. Uh, Keith, I'll let you, I'll let you give this feel. You're so good at it. You've had 50 episodes of it. Yes. 50 um, times, right? The standard right. closing. Yeah. Thank, <laughs> thank you both for uh, allowing me to join for this episode. It's, it's, it's great to just, uh, you know, uh, riff on these, on these questions with you guys. Uh, so Keith, I'll let you, I'll let you wrap it up. <laughs> Well, thank you, Taylor, for joining us today. And I always thank you anyway at the end, but I will thank you now to your face. We appreciate everything you do for us and you're a wonderful producer. And I will second what you said earlier about how your skills have developed and evolved as a producer over time. You, you've been awesome. So we're so grateful to you. Um, and thanks as well to, to Carol, Dr. Carol Glass, our colleague and all of her support of the podcast. Um, if you want to connect with us, the MSB Institute, we have a website, mindfulsportperformance.org. 
our, our podcast um, has some social media as well. Our Instagram page, which Taylor referenced earlier. So it's at mindful underscore sport underscore podcast. Uh, we also have our YouTube channel where uh, you can find a great library of all the meditations that our guests have led at the start of our episodes, including we'll post Tim's from earlier today, which was great. So thanks again for leading that, Tim. Um, and if you want to con uh, connect with me, Dr. Keith Kaufman, I'm on Twitter at MindfulSportDoc. Uh, and we very much welcome your reviews uh, of our podcast, our ratings of our podcast, uh, wherever you find your podcast. Uh, and our book, which is still out there, Mindful Sport Performance, Mental Training for Athletes and Coaches. So check that out. And if you are willing to give us a review, we are always appreciative. Um, so thank you again to all of our listeners for being with us for, for 50 episodes now. And uh, thank you, Taylor, for joining us. And we'll, we'll see you all next time. Yeah, thanks, everybody. See yeah. ya.